Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. See, I was resting at the park, minding my own business as I kick up the treble tone on my radio tape player box, right? Just loud enough so folks can hear its hype, see? Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary, the Luke 19A episode. Lo-Fi Lectionary is your podcast for the religiously burned out and the spiritually curious. We go through the Bible chapter by chapter, story by story, and it's been a lot of fun. We have been journeying through the book of Luke, and uh, we've been identifying as we read the story, identifying as the story presents us, as Luke has written it, what is God like, what are people like, and why would anyone find these stories useful or important. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to dive into the first half of Luke 19. Normally we only, we do a whole chapter at a time, but we're actually going to do one half of Luke 19 today. And the reason we're doing that is because Luke 19, the whole chapter actually has two major phases or parts, sections of the Jesus story as Luke presents it in one chapter. And I want to take the story seriously as a story itself. So we're only going to do the first half So that way, next episode, we can do a more full look at the story as it breaks halfway through 19. Um, uh, When they added the chapter numbers and verse numbers to uh, what we we call the Bible today, um, they often didn't really look at it as story beats. Uh, They kind of broke it up kind of in places where they sometimes just like were like, here's where a new chapter is going to start. A little bit arbitrarily or something like that. I believe that the story makes a big break in the middle of Luke 19, so we are going to take that break seriously in our episode today. So we're going to look at the first two little stories just of Luke 19, so hopefully this will be a shorter (laughs) episode for all of you listeners who enjoy shorter episodes. It might even be so short that Lynn could listen to this episode, so shout out to Lynn. I, she's cool, but she likes the shorter episodes. Anyway, uh, we're going to go ahead and jump right into Luke 19. Here we go. Text goes like this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus, because Jesus was going to pass that way. So first break right here. Um, Luke is about to tell us a story about a guy named Zacchaeus uh, and how he interacts with Jesus in this little little section of the story. It's a wonderful section of the story. I hope you like it too. Um, But in giving us details about this stranger, um, you know, this guy hasn't been following Jesus. He hasn't been a part of the story yet. He's just, as far as we know, some guy in Jericho that Jesus runs into. But Luke gives careful mention to a number of details about the story that we don't normally get, even about people who have really good interactions with Jesus. So first of all, we get his name, Zacchaeus. Um, We get his job. He's a chief tax collector. You could also translate that as a ruler of tax collectors. We get his social status. He was rich. We get a physical description of him. He was short in stature. Those are four details that sometimes we don't get about anyone. Jesus met someone else in the last chapter and it was like, he was a ruler, a certain ruler. No name, no social status, no anything, just ruler, you know, just his job, stuff like that. So it's kind of interesting that Luke gives us so many details about Zacchaeus. And there's a reason, story-wise, why Luke does that. Because all of these little details about Zacchaeus 
come into play as Zeus becomes a character in the story that like embodies and encapsulates a lot of themes and, and is in contrast to a number of previous characters in the story. So take note of all those things. First of all, his name. His name is Zacchaeus, which is Greek for um, pure or innocent in the, in the Greek and the Hebrew, um, which is kind of interesting because everything else that we learn about Zacchaeus is an ironic contrast to his own name. Everything else we learn about Zacchaeus is something that makes him not pure, not innocent. Um, he's, we learn that he's not just a tax collector, but a chief or ruler of tax collectors. There's a linguistic connection between him and other people in the story. So not only are tax collectors viewed as, uh, People who have sold out to Rome, who are traitors to their own people, who are despicable people for the job that they've picked and the political allegiance that they've chosen. But he is a chief and a ruler among tax collectors. Rulers so far in the book of Luke do not have good characterizations. Every time we've met with a ruler or someone mentions a ruler to Jesus, it's always in a negative light. Remember, there's people who are like, hey, Herod, the king is looking for you. And she's like, go tell that fox. Rulers are shifty people who want power and wealth and will do anything they can to get it and will hurt other people. They are misaligned with the kingdom of God. And so here we have Zacchaeus being a ruler among tax collectors. It's a double negative. It's really, really bad. Um, and then we also learn that he is rich, which again, every like wealthy person that we've run across in the book of Luke does not do well with the Jesus movement. Um, Three times Jesus tells parables where he talks about someone being rich as a character. And every single time, the rich person is the bad character in the parable. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry in Luke 6, pronounces blessings on some people and woes on the other. And the rich people get the woes. And like nothing else throughout the whole book of Luke, um, when G when Jesus talks about things, when he gives like ethical teaching about people who are doing it right and people who are doing it wrong, people who get into the kingdom and people who don't, Jesus says there's one thing in particular that might keep you out of the kingdom in a powerful way like nothing else, and it's money and wealth. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And so it's very dangerous to be wealthy. And you might even turn that to say, there is a kind of um, despicableness that comes almost with being wealthy. It's like a challenge, but it's also a sign that maybe you're doing life wrong if you have wealth, which is in contrast to the cultural thought of the day. Like to be wealthy was to be seen as, oh, you're doing it right. Not so much different from today. Um, and so Zacchaeus, but if you've been tracking along, if you're a reader of the book of Luke, so far, even if the culture around you has said wealth is a good thing, the privileged are wealthy, the people who've done life right are wealthy, the blessed by God are the ones who are wealthy. If you're tracking with the Jesus story in Luke so far, you have been now trained to think that wealth is a sign of something bad. And so here we get Zacchaeus. He's supposed to be pure and innocent, but he's a chief tax collector and he's rich. More than that, even beyond that, we get a description of his physical stature. He is short in stature. And in, ancient, in the ancient world, uh, in Israel, as well as in other surrounding communities and cultures and stuff like that, in religious, like, there was religious and moral meaning attributed towards your physical stature. 
And so uh, we even get stories in in Leviticus, in the book of Leviticus in, in chapter 21. If you were exceptionally short, if you were considered uh, what, what even in the text says like a dwarf or something like that, you were not allowed to cross certain boundaries in the temple. What they were saying was if you are too short, you are not allowed to be close to God. It would be wrong for you to be there. And they believe that God would be offended if you were too short and you tried to get too close to God. As a result of that kind of thinking, their religious culture builds around this idea that things like birth defects, infant mortality, sicknesses, illnesses, build in a way that if you had those things, if you were afflicted by them, it was the result of your past sins. So if you experienced shortness, or if you experienced a disease or something like that, you would be looked upon and suspect in your community as someone who is morally despicable or someone who is less human. You're deformed in a certain way, like deformed, like wrongly human. And so in a lot of ancient myths and stuff like that, they talk about short people as being monkey-like, like less than human. And so there's actually uh, ancient Greek myths that we get where um, and Roman myths where short people are characters and stories that like live and hang out in trees or will go hide there the way that like monkeys do because there's less than human in a certain sense. And so we have transcripts of debates between philosophers and teachers where they will mock other people and actually fight a philosophical argument against others if that person is shorter than them. And so that's why, I mean, starting in the ancient world, you have this practice of like short people often found places as being like court jesters or dancers and, and people in communities that actually had to present themselves as being an object of scorn in order to get by. And that's the way the ancient world thought. And so... um we get this description of Zacchaeus. So if you're an, an average listener of the, of this story, you're like, okay, he's a ruler. He's a tax collector. He's rich. Oh, and he's short too ew, gross. You know what? Like maybe because he was short, he chose such bad uh, occupations and sinful ways to live in the world. Or maybe because he was going to choose such a sinful way to live in the world, he was, he was uh, punished with shortness. Like, there's kind of a circular kind of reasoning around it that people might have. And so the introduction to this character is not a good one. Like, you are being primed from the get-go to be like, oh, this Zacchaeus guy, let's see what he does. He's up to no good. And we even see that he wants to see Jesus, which is a, which is a good thing, but he climbs up in the tree. He takes, like, the position of kind of being monkey-like, like less than other people in order to see Jesus. So uh, as we continue on, like like... Put that into your brain. Um, so altogether, Zacchaeus is kind of a despicable figure at best, or he might be pathetic to the listener. Like, or despicable at worst, pathetic at best, is what I meant to say. Um, there's something kind of corrupt and deformed about him. But yet he wants to see Jesus, you know? Like, he's, he's eager to see him. And we have people all throughout the text of Luke that are good or bad, who for some reason want to see Jesus. Even Herod wants to see Jesus. You know, and so he climbs up in a sycamore tree. For those of you who are who are into trees and stuff like that, this is a ficus sycamorus, um, a particular kind of tree that would grow figs and stuff like that. Um, but what's interesting about this tree is that its limbs grow close to the ground. So animals or people could kind of climb up into them easily just to get a, a little bit of a boost um, if they needed to, to get off the ground to hide or to see over the audience, which is exactly what Zacchaeus does. So Jesus is about to pass by Jericho, um, 
on his way to Jerusalem, he's, he's, he's begun this pilgrimage. He's set his face towards Jerusalem and he's on his way and he's passing through Jericho. There's a guy named Zacchaeus there. He wants to see him. Let's see what happens next. When Jesus came to this place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried down and was happy to welcome Jesus. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. So quick stop again, right again, right there. Um, uh, Jesus is, is, is on his way from Jericho to Jerusalem. Um, the, the geographical distance from Jericho to Jerusalem is 17 miles. So Jesus has 17 more miles to go on his trip. And from here on out, it's uphill. Like Jerusalem is a city on a hill. It's a city kind of kind of up. It was a protected good place to pick your capital and to put your temple. Um, so there's a good ways to still go. So he needs a place to stop. He's, he's, he's going to stop for the night and rest there before they continue their journey. He needs a place to stop. He needs a couple things. He needs a place big enough for him and all of his disciples, the people he's traveling with, to stay all in one place. So they need to find hospitality with someone who's there and a big enough place that they can all stay. So generally, remember, um, as you travel in the ancient world, people were expected, it was in the written law of of Israel, that you had to be a person who, when you met a traveler, you invited them to stay. That was part of their culture, part of their people. That turns into the common practice of honored folks who were kind of more pious and more privileged, who could give a lot of people a place to stay, would seek out opportunities to invite guests to come and stay at their place. And so therefore, we get a lot of other stories where people um, aren't hospitable, and that's a sign of dishonor. And Jesus goes out of his way to point that out. If you have the wealth and means to take care of other people, and you don't, shame on you. Um, But the customary practice was for honored folks to go to guests and travelers to invite them to stay. And then you as a guest would be, would, would give them honor by accepting their offer. And so, um, what we have here is Jesus makes a play on that custom and that practice. Jesus twists it just a little bit. He actually approaches Zacchaeus and says, I want to, I must stay at your house today. Now, there's a couple different things at play. It is actually disrespectful or kind of dishonorable for Jesus to go and be the one to ask for a place to stay. You commonly did not request a place. You accepted a request, especially if you were an honored teacher you or traveler. You waited for someone to make the offer to you. And that way you kind of kept your honor and then could kind of bestow honor upon them. And Jesus here doesn't wait for a request. In fact, he's might have already turned down other requests from other people. Because from Jesus' point of view, he has a very direct action. He goes and he sees and he finds Zacchaeus, goes right up to the tree, looks up and says, I have to stay at your house today. Jesus isn't interested in receiving more honor from others. His primary interest is to give honor to others, especially Zacchaeus, one who is dishonored and ostracized from his community. Jesus is up to something here. And so how does Zacchaeus respond? Maybe the more honorable response from Zacchaeus would be to deny. Jesus, I'm sorry, you've made a mistake. I'm not the kind of person that you should be coming and staying with. But this offer from Jesus gets him so excited that he hurries down and is happy to welcome him. 
Now, we've met other rulers in the last chapter and in previous places who are not happy to encounter Jesus. We meet other people who are who invite Jesus to stay at their house, but then don't end up happy to actually be close to Jesus. Or when they hear the things that Jesus actually teaches, they get upset about it. Pharisees invite Jesus over to their house. And then when Jesus opens his mouth and starts to teach, they go like, oh no, like they've made a huge mistake. Um, Whereas Zacchaeus is immediately happy. This is in direct contrast to the ruler we meet in Luke 18, who goes to Jesus in the same way that Zacchaeus tries to get close to Jesus, asks him a question, and then is sad about Jesus' response. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, words come out of Jesus' mouth, I must come and stay at your house today, and he receives Jesus happily, and he welcomes him. Um... And so um, Jesus calls him out of the tree. He invites Zacchaeus out of his position of marginalization. He invites him out of the characterization, the monkey characterization that he's been given by his community and even by the story himself. He breaks his own honor by going up to Zacchaeus and asking it. um, And he asks a notorious person, which again, breaks his own kind of sense of honor among the community. And then he says, I have to stay at your house. So not only does he approach Zacchaeus and give him his attention, by say, by staying at Zacchaeus' house, he's saying, Zacchaeus, I want to enter into table fellowship with you. It's an offer of friendship and intimacy to Zacchaeus. He goes to the person furthest out and invites him to be closest to him. And so again, Zacchaeus and Jesus both seem eager And dare I say, happy to be together and to have this moment together. And in contrast, we get the crowd. It says, all who saw it. So maybe this even includes some of Jesus' own followers, for all we know. All who saw it began to grumble, saying, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Ew, gross. Jesus is obviously making a bad choice, they think, by going to this tax collector, this ruler, this traitor, this short person. Ugh, doesn't he know any better? And so these people can't join the party. And we've seen this in Luke before, where grumbling is a sign that people are putting themselves out of the experience of the kingdom of God, of the goodness of God, of the favor and mercy and goodness that Jesus tries to bring with him everywhere he goes. It's scandalous to them. They're so caught up in these customary things of their honor code. They're so caught up in the religious way of thinking of their certain kinds of people who are in and certain kinds of people who are out that they miss out on the experience that Jesus and Zacchaeus are about to have together. Zacchaeus doesn't miss it. And in fact, there's a there's an unspoken scene change that happens here. Zacchaeus welcomes him into his home, and it's not explicitly said, but we continue on to a scene at the house, because here's where the text goes. Zacchaeus stood up, or stood there, and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor, and if I defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay them back four times as much. And then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. The Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. So Zacchaeus has welcomed Jesus into his house. The crowd follows. They have they're having their moment of table fellowship, and 
after the experience of being welcomed and and Jesus choosing him to honor him, to invite him into closeness and fellowship, Zacchaeus has this moment of having experienced the goodness of Jesus where he responds with repentance. And he gives the statement, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. So it's what has happened to Zacchaeus is the same thing that we get like in the Scrooge or the Grinch stories. It's this model of change that happens inside of Zacchaeus that leads to outward actions. Like a little bit of love and favor has made Zacchaeus's heart grow three times that day. And so we we get like these promises on his behalf of what he's going to do to change. And the first one is, look, half of my possessions, Lord, he identifies Jesus as a master of Lord, I will give to the poor. So Zacchaeus is successful where the rich ruler in the last story, in the Luke 18 story, doesn't get successful. Jesus invites him, give away the stuff that you have and then come follow me. And he leaves sad because he's rich. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, is happy and eager to give away what he has to the poor. And he only has to give away um, half. And Jesus doesn't say, well, I'm sorry, you got to go all the way or nothing. Like Jesus is like, oh my gosh, what is a, what something that's happened here is amazing. So if you remember at the end of the passage with the ruler in the last chapter, there's this little moment where everyone's like, well, if this guy couldn't make it, then who could make it ever? Because Jesus is like, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And so they say, well, then who can make it? And Jesus goes, well, what is impossible for people is possible for God. And so here, when Jesus celebrates Zacchaeus' repentance, by offering him favor, it has led to Zacchaeus repenting and promising to change his ways. And that leads to the impossible being possible. Because then Zacchaeus even continues, I'll give half of my stuff away to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, if I've stolen from anyone, which remember, for tax collectors, that's how they made their money. They were supposed to keep a portion of the taxes that they ordered people to pay to Rome in order to pay for their household, and they abused their position of power to take extra taxes from people to become wealthy off the backs of the poorest of the poor in their community. And Zacchaeus promises, if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times as much. The four times as much comment actually um, identifies or shows, reveals that Zacchaeus understands that he has done wrong. He's been a thief because it was in their law code that anything stolen would have to be paid back four times as much. So he's not saying like, oh, you know, if I've uh, <laughs> accidentally taken too much, I'll give it back. He's like, no. Anything I've defrauded anyone of, anything I've stolen them from, I'll pay back four times. I'll do full and complete repentance and forgiveness to them. Um, and so, so, um, so not only is is this is Zacchaeus succeeding where the ruler in, has failed in the past of giving away to the poor, where where other people find it impossible to do so. He also is fully repentant of any of the sins and mistakes that he's made in the past. Like Zacchaeus becomes an embodiment of everything that Jesus has said that we people need to do to enter the kingdom of being both repentant and generous and showing favor to others. So Zacchaeus is just nailing it right here in the same way that the blind man in the last story really nails it 
and gets everything right. Zacchaeus really nails it and gets everything right for people of a certain social class who want to be close to Jesus. Um, And so Jesus responds with, today salvation has come to this house. So remember, for Jesus, salvation is a thing that is future, but is also experienced in the present today. Today salvation has come to this house. And it's not because Zacchaeus has changed his theology or prayed a new prayer. It's because he's promised to do something in response to the goodness of God in a way that benefits the poorest of the poor and the vulnerable and that changes his ways now. Um, And so Jesus, as Zacchaeus has humbled himself, he's admitted his wrongdoing. You know, like we see him as a humble figure from the beginning. He's, He's kind of ostracized from the community. And even as he climbs up into a tree, remember distance and geographical things are important in the book of Luke. As he's climbed up, he's actually furthered himself down as he does that. And now he's going even further. I would admit that I've stolen and I've cheated. And so now Jesus is able to lift him up. Remember, all who humbled will be exalted. All who go down will go up in the book of Luke. So Jesus picks him up and raises him up. Today's salvation has come to us because he too is a son of Abraham. So remember, remember back to the rich man and Lazarus parable that Jesus tells. And Lazarus, the poor man, um, dies and is invited close to Abraham to be, to lie next to him, to like, to be in like Abraham's bosom, some translations say. And whereas the rich man goes down into, into the land of the dead. Um, here, Jesus is like, he too, Zacchaeus, is a son of Abraham. He is getting it right where the rich man in that parable got it wrong. And so he is, is today, not in the future, not after death, is invited and restored to the community of God's people. So what's interesting is Jesus doesn't say, oh, that's so great. God will totally forgive you. Jesus also restores him to the community around him, to the people of Israel, to the kingdom of God. And so he's restored to his own community as well as to like figurative community of both the nation and the religious community and to the king, the, to like the like ethereal coming into the present kingdom of God. What happens right here to Zacchaeus is a huge cosmic event that becomes real in the present tangible world right now. It's a huge deal. Like Jesus doesn't go around pronouncing things like that, but what he is, he's so overjoyed of, of Zacchaeus's decision to change that he just pronounces this big thing over him. And then he, he, he says for the son of man, for I, that's remember, that's Jesus's way of saying me came to seek out and to save the lost. Like Jesus is interested in the business of restoring outsiders to the kingdom of God. So remember, um, Jesus tells a series of three parables in a row where he characterizes God as being like one who goes out and seeks for lost things, coins, sheep, people, stuff like that. Um, and that's the business that he's up to in the world. So Jesus is like, no, I'm, I'm, I know you all grumble about this, but I'm interested in bringing these people who are the furthest out in. And the people that you hate and that you don't love and don't think are worthy, those are the people I want to be closest to, to restore them to the community. So just like in that story of the lost son, you know, with the loving father, like when, when people are restored from the outside in, Jesus almost expects that people are going to grumble and he doesn't care. So just like the other brother grumbles when the younger son is invited back into the family, Jesus is like, yeah, you're all grumbling right here. I don't care. This is exactly what I want to be doing in the world. Pretty cool stuff. Um, As they were listening to this, as the text goes on, as they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem 
and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately. So again, um, this is an introduction to a parable, and Luke goes out of its way to give us a couple little bonus pieces of information. Like sometimes Jesus just goes right into a parable, but sometimes Luke, excuse me, gives us little details to set us up in particular for the meaning of the parable. And usually it actually seems to happen behind before parables that are kind of particularly tricky. Ones that are particularly tricky will either be explained afterwards or will given a clue right beforehand because Luke seems to know like, okay, this is going to be a hard one, but it's important. Make sure you get the right message here. So the context for this parable is going to be Jesus wants to teach them something because they suppose he knows that the people around him believe that the kingdom of God is going to appear immediately. What does that mean? Well, back in the day, um, when people had expectations for the kingdom of God to come, they expected that there was going to be a Messiah figure that was going to come and that was going to reestablish Israel as an independent nation so they could finish and live on doing their work that God wants them to do in the world of saving the whole world. Like, the world wasn't saved until Israel was an independent like nation again. So the messianic figure was going to be a kingly figure that was going to lead, if need be, in military conquest against their enemies. That was the only way to save the world was to lead it in conquest and get rid of those dirty, awful Romans um, or Greeks or whoever it was. And so Jesus is now like, okay, we're getting close to Jerusalem. I think that these people think that I'm going there to finish the work now, that I'm going to inaugurate the kingdom of God right now. It's going to appear immediately. And he seems worried that they're going to want to, that they think he's leading a military movement into Jerusalem to overthrow things, to take this over and make it happen right now. And Jesus doesn't agree with that point of view. He's going to Jerusalem for a different reason. And he knows what their expectations are. So he's like, let me tell you a story right here. So that way we don't get carried away. And here's what the story is. Here's the first part. So Jesus said, a nobleman went to a distant country to get royal power for himself and then return. He summoned 10 of his slaves before he left and he gave them each, uh, each one mina. So he gave them all 10 minas and said to them, do business with these until I get back. But the citizens of his country hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to rule over us. Okay, what's happening here? Um, so Rome was a giant empire and they continually took over other countries. And when they took over countries, they were smart enough to know, instead of ruling over these ourselves, we're going to pick micromanagers. So we're going to pick new rulers to rule over each of these districts so that way we don't have to manage everything. And when they picked a ruler, that ruler would have to make a pilgrimage back to Rome to kind of um, to be appointed and go through like a ceremony and stuff like that to be granted the power, the legal authority to then return to their land and take it over. So a nobleman went to a distant country for royal power for himself and then returned. So that's what's happening here. Someone has been picked to be the ruler over this place, but they have to go to Rome first to get like the blessing and then come back. So before they leave, um, so right away, Jesus is kind of giving a clue as to what the rest of the parables focus is. Um, remember it's about that. It's the, the kingdom of God is not appearing immediately. Jesus gives a clue right here. It's not the work of, of establishing the kingdom of God is not being finished right now. Like if there's a ruler in place, maybe being himself, um, there's going to be a, they're going to leave. 
and then return later. And so then the focus is going to be on what these 10 servants or slaves do with what they've been given. Um, so we have 10, it's some translations say slaves, some translations say servants. That's because it's the same word. So we don't know exactly what it, which, which one it is. It's people who are under like legal job obligation to carry out the work of their master. And so they're each given one mina because there's 10 servants and 10 minas. One mina would be about three months of wages for one of these people. So he's giving them bonus money. And here's, here's, here's a thing that helps us understand what's going on here. Bonus money in the time was a very rare thing. Most people didn't have money sitting around. And so to be given it was a huge entrustment to these servants and slaves. Um, and when you're given money like that, do business with these. He's saying, go and go and invest these in the community. Now, because capital was so rare for anyone to have back then, um, people were eager for capital and would make big promises of interest on returning it. Because it was so rare, you could charge a lot of interest. And so, um, so if you were a person who was, who had capital to then invest in the community, to grant to other people to lend, um, you could get really high returns. Now this practice was actually against the law of Israel, but it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. You were never supposed to charge interest to other people from your, from Israel. Um, Really interesting. God, for some reason, has this idea that lending money shouldn't cost that person things. Anyway, that's a side note. Um, but uh, but in the context of the parable, this guy's leaving. He says, go and invest this money. Try and make more money with it. Um, and so at the time, a re- getting a double return, if you lend someone money, was actually like at least you would get double back. But at the time, because capital was so rare, you could, if you were, if you were savvy and you lended well, you could get five or 10 times the amount back of the money you lent. Because again, capital was just so rare and so hard to find that you could charge whatever you want for interest. And some people would say, yes, I'll pay it. Um, and so that's what he's telling them to go do, go do business with this until I get back. Um, and then there's this weird comment, but the citizens of his country hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to rule over us. So um, when Rome picked a ruler, while they were going on their pilgrimage to get the legal status to be the ruler, if if your people didn't like them, you could send a delegation or a representative to Rome to request that this person be not picked. Please don't pick this person. And so um, we get that little detail in there. Um, And you could read this as Jesus... um, putting a, putting a comment in the thing, if he's characterizing himself in any way parallel to this nobleman who's getting royal power, um, you could say that Jesus is here continuing the practice of predicting or anticipating that he's going to be rejected by his own community. Um, but I'm, I'm a little wary of reading too much into that comment in, in general. Let's go ahead and continue on in the story. When the nobleman returned, he had received royal power. So he's coming back to take over this country. And he ordered these slaves to whom he had been given money to be summoned so that he might find out what they had gained by trading. When the first came forward, they said, Lord, your pound has made 10 more pounds, your your mina pound, depending on the translation. And the master said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been trustworthy in a very small thing. Take charge of 10 cities. 
And the second servant came saying, Lord, your pound has made five pounds. And the master said to him, and you go rule over five cities. So quick note, um, because capital was so rare and that returns of 10 or five times were almost regular or, 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 I mean, they're on the good side of a return for an investment, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like crazy. It was like, oh, I made a thousand times over. Um, that's just expected. So these guys have, have, have done well, not extravagantly well, but, but pretty dang well for, for their job. Let's see what happens to the next guy. Then the other servant came, said, Lord, here is your mina. I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth for I was afraid of you because you are a harsh man and you did not take what you deposit and you don't reap what you do not sow. Well, and you reap what you do not sow. You'll notice the change of tone in there. That's intentional because here's what's happening here for years and years and years. I didn't understand this parable. I'm kind of starting to. Okay. So this last guy comes and he's like, okay, here's, here's your mina. Here's the coin you gave me. Here's three months wages back. Here's what I did with it. I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth to receive money, which again was very rare. So if someone, especially a master entrusted you with their money, it was your job. Your life was on the line for protecting that money. And so what does this person do? He doesn't go and invest it as he was told to or do business with it. He doesn't even put it somewhere safe. There's a couple safe places in his community that he could have put it. He could have put it in a bank. He could have taken it to the temple where there was another bank. And those would be safe places to put the money. If he didn't do either of those, he could have gotten a lockbox and put his money away in that what they called a strong box. And they could, he could dig a hole and bury it somewhere so no one would find it to keep it safe. Does he do any of those things? No. <laughs> he takes the money and wraps it up in a piece of cloth. We don't even get in the text as to whether or not he ever buried it to keep it safe. He just wraps it up in a napkin and puts it somewhere. Like when the hearers of the story heard that they would be like, what? Like, like this would be insane. If someone gave you three months wages, if the master of your house, especially if you were a slave and your body was on the line here, and someone gave you three months wages. And what you did with it was you wrapped it up in a cloth. Everyone would be scandalized and shocked by the behavior of this slave. What's happening here is that the slave has made a decision that conveys a message to his master that says, I don't care about you or your money. I don't even care if it got lost or stolen. I just wrapped it up in a hanky and put it somewhere. And here I found it. So here you can have it back. I don't care about you. This would be, this person would be seen as so foolish and so careless that it's disrespectful how this person is behaving to the master. It communicates dishonor back to their own master. Then on top of it, he adds this line. Oh, I did this because I was afraid of you because you are a harsh man. And you take what you do not deposit and you reap what you do not sow. You're a thief and a cheat and a stealer, this guy says. Now, maybe some of this is true because we do get the line that the people of this country don't really like this guy, but it just kind of comes out of nowhere. And even so, if this guy is a slaver's master, it doesn't matter 
what he's done, this guy's instruction is that he's supposed to go use the money well, or at least protect it and take care of it, and he does neither. And so after doing neither, he then turns around and publicly, in front of an audience, after this person has come back and has sat on his throne to take over the country, publicly insults the master. You are a harsh man, and you steal from people. What do you think of that? Um, so when, before, up until recently, when I read the story, I actually empathized with this guy because I was like, yeah, I know what it's like to be afraid. I know what it's like to be scared. Even of God, I know what it's like to be scared and to be so worried about losing something that you're going to get in trouble, that you kind of are so fearful that you go into inaction. This is not a story about a guy being so scared that he goes into inaction. This is a guy who hates his master and has such non-care or honor or respect for his master that he does the littlest possible. In fact, he almost goes out of his way to put it in an unsafe place so it could get lost or stolen. Um, This is about a servant who is selfish and careless while his master is gone. He's not characterized as selfish or careless while his master's there. In fact, beforehand, he had exhibited the kind of character that his master trusted him with a mina, with three months' wages. But when his master is gone, suddenly he becomes lazy and careless and foolish and spiteful and disrespectful. Like, this is not a story of a guy being so scared that he didn't know what to do. This is the manager of Taco Bell stepping out for a few days and the, and the, the kid who works in the back licking all the taco shells and getting in trouble. Um, And then when the boss comes back, him blaming the boss for his action. And we see that this this kind of thing isn't a new theme. Because all throughout the book of Luke, occasionally Jesus will give teachings where he says, you have to use your time and your resources carefully, you guys. Whatever you have, you have to share. Whatever you have isn't really yours. Use it well. And there's going to come a time soon when life is going to get really hard. But it's a time when you need to stay alert and prepared, and keep using what you have to show goodness and favor towards others. And don't be selfish, and don't ignore it, and don't get lazy while no one is here to watch you. Be ready to go when the time comes. We got that story back in Luke 17. There was a different, end, like a, an end-timey, judgment-y kind of parable, an apocalyptic parable about that very thing. And so Jesus is here going, it's like, look, It's not going to happen right away. The kingdom of God isn't appearing immediately. So just be ready now and don't be careless. And especially don't show disrespect or honor for the very people that have given you what you've been given. And so here's how the parable continues. The, The master said to him, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked slave. You knew did you that I was a harsh man and that I took what I didn't deposit and reaped what I didn't sow? So why then did you not put my money in the bank? Then when I returned, I have collected it with, I could have collected it with interest. So again, quick note, he's saying, if you were really scared of me, if I was such a bad guy, you would have been extra safe with my money. So this gives further evidence that this is not, that the guy was really bad and that the servant was really earnestly scared. This guy is just a jerk and is just disrespectful. Um, So why then did you not put my money in the bank? Then when I returned, I could have collected it with interest. So he turned to the bystanders, because remember, this is a public happening. And he says, take the mina from him and give it to the guy who had 10 minas. (laughs) 
And all the people said, Lord, he already has 10 minus. <laughs> and the master said, I tell you, to all those who have, more will be given. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. <laughs> um, so to, to judge someone by their own words, kings and rulers would often um, ask people questions when they, were, when they were interrogating them. And then kind of as ironic punishment, use their own words, language, answers in response to that interrogation to become um, the proper punishment for them. So he's like, oh, so you think I'm a horrible person who steals from people and takes from people and is wicked and harsh? Okay, I'm going to be wicked and harsh towards you. That's the proper punishment. You think I'm harsh, I'll be harsh to you. And so um, he, uh, there's this line about uh, you know bringing the people before them and slaughtering them in my presence. That's actually a way that rulers would, would act back then. So we actually have um, uh, uh, records of people like Herod and people like that being that kind of harsh, like slaughtering people in the public presence, stuff like that. Um, and it's here to... Here that I think is a good time to remember that when Jesus tells parables, um, he often has characters that have the same kind of role that religiously people would believe that God have, but are actually people who rule in a way that's in contrast to the character of God. Remember we had the parable of the judge who was like, yeah, he's a judge like God, but he's a judge who with a very different character than God has. And so I think we need to be really careful to remember what's the point of this parable that Luke has clued us into and that Jesus himself in creating, in telling the characters and describing them in a certain way. We, we don't want to get theological lessons from this parable where it's not intended to teach us something theologically. This is not a parable where it's like Jesus wanted to describe what God is really like to them in the same way that other parables do. So Jesus, um, this nobleman, is therefore the God character who tells people what God is really like. That's not the case here. The focus is on the servants teaching his audience a lesson about how they, as God's people, are supposed to act and be like. So yes, there's this horrible language about slaughtering and stuff like that in this, in this parable. Let's be quick not to take this as Jesus saying, this is what's going, this is what God is going to do to people who don't do the right thing right now. Be very careful about that. You can read it that way if you want to, but the parable does not directly imply that. You'd have to have evidence from elsewhere in the scriptures. <laughs> um, so Jesus is here telling this parable as a way of who has the same role that they have? These servants have. They've been given things and they need to do something during the time that they've been given with the things they've been given. Um, so there's two, there's actually three servants that give a response and two of them become models of good servants. They take what they've been given. They use it wisely according to what the master tells them to. And oh my goodness, they get a good return and that's good. Yay, yay, yay for them. Then there's a heel servant, like the bad servant who's disrespectful and dishonorable and doesn't use the time that his master is gone wisely. And so remember, Jesus is teaching them this parable because he knows that they think the kingdom of God is going to come right now, but it's not. There's going to be a time of waiting and preparation. And he's saying, be like the good servants. Remember that your time is to be used wisely. Remember um, 
that uh, you have to use what you've been given for the benefit of others and stuff like that. Don't waste it. Don't get lazy while I'm gone. Just as other people in Luke 17, some of them stayed prepared and stayed alert, and some of them didn't. And it's better for you if you're prepared and alert, even when I'm not here to watch over you, to guide you, to follow you all the time. Jesus is preparing his people for the time that he's going to literally be gone. Because they have to continue on the work. Um... So interesting parable, not a, not a great ending, but that's how it goes. And this here kind of concludes this first half of the chapter and concludes a whole phase of the book of Luke with this one sentence. After Jesus said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So he stays with Zacchaeus, he gives some quick teachings, and then they move on. And from here on out, it's a whole different part of the story. From here on out, it's all the stuff that's going to happen that's centered around Jerusalem. Remember, Luke um, frames his book as being things that happen back and forth in relationship to the city of Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is the center of their worship, it's the center of political action, it's the center of things that are going to happen even after the book of Luke is over, where the conquest by Rome comes in and stuff like that. Um, and so the climax of the birth narrative happens when they take baby Jesus to Jerusalem to be blessed. There's a climax to the time of his childhood when he goes back to Jerusalem and gets lost and spends time in the temple and identifies it as God's house. There's a climax to the time that Jesus takes to prepare and inaugurate his own ministry in Luke 4, where the devil gives him all the, the uh, Satan gives him all these temptations and the last one happens in the city of Jerusalem and then Jesus leaves and does his ministry. Now he's going back. Everything happens either to and away from Jerusalem or back at it. And in Luke 9, it said that Jesus is now setting his face on Jerusalem. He's been circling around it in various places with one eye always on. There's, oh, we're getting ready to go to Jerusalem. We're getting ready. We're getting ready. We're getting ready. Now it's actually going to happen. So we're going to stop here and answer our lo-fi questions about what's happened just here so far. And then we'll continue on. So lo-fi questions. What is God like in this little first half of Luke 19? Um, um, well, some of the things I love about, um, the way that Jesus acts in here is that God doesn't seem concerned with his own reputation. And we've seen that elsewhere in the book of Luke. Um, Jesus goes out of his way almost to break the, the, the conventions of how they're supposed to show honor and respect or receive honor and respect from others in order to show favor and mercy to people who haven't been given honor or respect in their community. To people who've been ostracized. Those are the people he wants to be closest to, even if it damages his reputation as an honorable teacher, as a God follower, as a good Israelite, stuff like that. And so um, what we find here in Luke 19 is that God isn't one who has punished Zacchaeus with shortness for his sins. God, when he acts and he engages Zacchaeus in the story, is the one who sees his pain, sees that he's an outsider, and actually does everything he can to bring him close. And then when Zacchaeus responds appropriately by humbling himself and repenting, he then lifts him up and restores him to the community. That's the work that God is interested in in Luke 19, which is pretty cool. He takes Zacchaeus's sins, like the thievery, very seriously, but instead of ostracizing him to fix the problem, he creates closeness and then invites the rest of the community with him to bring Zacchaeus back in as well. It's almost as if God in Luke 19 is a God who understands why people might do the things they do, even the bad things that they do. He seems to understand and is interested in helping Zacchaeus 
this tax collector, this sinner, this traitor, who's harmed and stolen from people. And that, and then God can respond because he understands them empathetically in a way that enables people who have done bad things to do better things. Like God in Luke 19 is one who leads people in reconciling outsiders to their community. He's seeking and saving the lost. Pretty interesting. He's not just there to bless the people who are already in. He's focused more on the lost, the outsiders. Pretty neat. What are people like in Luke 19? How are they characterized in the story? Well, one, they can change, you know? Um, Whereas people before have been like, well, then who can make it? Can anyone do this? Can anyone get it right? Luke here is like, I'm going to show you one guy, Zacchaeus, who got it so right. What is impossible for people will become possible with God. When Jesus shows up and shows goodness and favor to Zacchaeus, suddenly repentance and life change is possible. And that's what people are like. There's hope for even the furthest out, for even people who are traitors and tax collectors and rulers and wealthy who have stolen from people, for even deformed human beings, which in their audience was an awful thing to have and was a sign of suspicion or judgment. There's hope for them as well. They can change. They can be blessed. They can receive goodness. Pretty interesting. Um, People also, on the other end, will grumble when goodness and mercy is given to people that they believe is undeserving. We've seen that time and time again in the book of Luke. And that's how Luke characterizes people. And so his audience then has to decide, like, where do they want to be in this scene? Do they want to be one of the people that accepts Zacchaeus? back into their place, or be like Zacchaeus and repent and experience salvation? Or are they going to be one of the grumblers? Because they have prejudices. Um, And then we get the parable of the servants. um, And people can do one of two things. Like in response to this parable, they can be people who take opportunities to do good with what they've been given. Or not. They can be well prepared for this life or they cannot. Um, so that's what people are like in the book of Luke. Why this story, though? Why these two little little, um, little sections in the book of Luke? Why did Luke hear them? Why did people tell them in the first place? Why did Luke write them down? Why did Luke, when he was editing, decide these are the stories that people need to hear? Why did people read them and keep the book of Luke around and stuff like that? Well, kind of like the blind man story that we got in the last chapter, this Zacchaeus story really brings together very well a lot of themes Um, from the entire block of teaching that we've been reading the last few chapters in the book of Luke. And it answers questions that people have been asking Jesus. How do we get into the kingdom of heaven? How do I inherit eternal life? How can I be part of God's people? Well, how can I possibly get in if, if, if the standards are this high? And stuff like that. And Jesus' response all the time has been like, repent, the kingdom of God is near. Remember, that's like the central message of his teachings early on in the book of Luke. And so people have been kind of asking, well, what does repentance look like? And the Zacchaeus story gives people at the time and gives people who read the book that Luke writes a model for what that repentance can look like. Give away everything you can to people who need it. And if you've done anything wrong, go fix it and be generous. And if you're not the one who needs to do that in the community, be one of the people who joins the party in accepting those people that God has shown goodness and favor to back when it's done. 
And so therefore it helps to, to answer for these people, okay, we're going to be waiting for a while while Jesus is gone. What does preparation look like? We know we want to be one of the good servants, but what are we supposed to do other than go and invest money? Like they could read it literally and just go do that. Or figuratively, if they're like, okay, we're supposed to be preparing, we're supposed to be waiting, we're supposed to be doing something, what is it? And the Zacchaeus story answers the parable that comes after it in a certain way. It's go show goodness and favor to others, even if those people are people who are undesirable to you or to your community, even if it offends others, even if it offends you, go and be good to others in the same way that Jesus is. And don't worry about your honor or your reputation being broken. In fact, your primary question is not how to protect yourself and protect your reputation. Your primary question is how can I bring honor to others? Who need it? For Luke's audience, they are live in a world full of prejudices against people of other nationalities, against people of other jobs, against people who where they align themselves politically, against people who just their body is different than the norm. They're they're you know heteronormative, and Luke includes these stories. I think because they're trying to build a community that breaks those prejudices down. And as you continue on throughout the book of Luke, before this and after this, you see over and over again, if you continue on to Luke's next book, the book of Acts, you see the community that starts after Jesus lives doing this all over the place. As you read the stories of the letters of Paul that happen out of the New Testament community that follows Jesus, you see him breaking down these prejudices left and right in radical ways that were not happening in the ancient world. And so Luke includes these stories here because they are vivid examples of the work that they believe the people are supposed to be about doing. It's revolutionary text here. And so what should they be doing in the world? We're breaking down prejudices. We're restoring a community like no one's ever seen before. And if you do have anything that you could share Give it away. Use what you've been given, like Zacchaeus does. Not like the ruler who fails in the last passage, and not like the bad servant in the parable. Don't get careless. Be diligent in being generous. And that's why they they put together this community. It would be especially important to them if they are parts of the communities in Luke's audience that have experienced tragedy and pain and awfulness and destruction of their people because they're going to be surrounded left and right by people who are in need. And there need to be other people in their community who step up and who say, their needs will be my needs. I will provide for them. We will care for them because no one else is going to do that. So it's kind of interesting. Um, so that's the end of Luke 19a, as I'll call it. Coming up soon, we'll, we'll venture into Luke 19b. We're going to go into this last phase of the book as Jesus sets his eye on Jerusalem. And basically from here on out, Jesus is kind of in a, in a dead line proceeding towards the cross, towards the crucifixion story, through that to the resurrection story, and then to the conclusion of the book. Um, 
So right now, um, next, before we actually continue on in the story, we might take a couple episodes and do like a like a thorough recap, like we used to do the Luke in two minutes. I might do an episode or two that kind of um, looks back on the story so far, so that way we are ready for the last part of the story, because it's been a long, over a year-long journey that we've been in the Luke. Um, and we might look at the story so far, you might watch um, the movement of the action, but I, would, I, I particularly want to do an episode where we kind of look at the, who are the characters at play so far in the book of Luke to set us up for what's going to happen in the story, in the plot for later. So we'll kind of look at the disciples, the Pharisees, the Romans, the other rulers at Jesus himself and see, okay, what have they done so far? How have they been characterized? And so where do we think we're headed as we go? Um, And what explains why the choices they make are the choices that they make. Um, So we're headed into the Slack section of Luke. Um, For the time being, uh, if you're listening to this and you made it this far, I'd like you to consider a couple of things. One, when we are done with the book of Luke, where do we want to go next? As I continue this podcast, what's the next lo-fi lectionary thing that we do? Do we pick another gospel? Do we like reading these Jesus stories? Do we go back into the Old Testament and pick a narrative or, or you know, a prophecy book or poetry or something like that and try, the, try to see what a lo-fi method for reading something other than a narrative would be? Do we continue forward into Luke's writing and just go through the book of Acts? What sounds fun to you? Um, I'd like to make the decision together. Also, um, as we are continuing on towards the end of the book of Luke, I would love, I would be, I would love to take a break and just have, um, uh, uh, an episode or two where we do like Q and a. So if there's questions that have come up throughout the book of Luke, send them to me. We can address those. If they come up from the story, we can look back at the story and try and answer them. Or if there's like theological, philosophical questions that have come up of tricky subjects that you are like, Oh, I'd love to hear more about this. Um, send me those questions or tell me what those topics are. I've heard from a couple of you guys, you've been like, um, the judgment stories are really weird. What the hell is really going on when we talk about hell? Or um, what's really going on? Someone brought up a question about rapture and stuff like that. Um, we can have episodes where we do like a, um, it wouldn't be like a lo-fi lectionary because we're not looking at a story, but we could do like a lo-fi theology <laughs> episode where we answer some of those questions. If you have them, send them to me. I'll go ahead and start preparing for that now. Um, But thank you for listening this far. It's going to be fun. Um, I can't wait to continue on in the book of Luke. I'll see you next episode. Take care, everyone. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review... Subscribe and share the podcast any way you can. Um, The more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. If you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, You can also find our podcast on Facebook and we can discuss and and keep things going on there. Uh, Just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Electionary and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net. And that's lofi with no dash. So L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofi kevin with no dash again. So at lofi kevin. Um, that's kind of it. So thank you for coming and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.